0: Welcome to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast brought to you by Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. Each month this podcast tackles the topics that are important to pulse crop farmers including market opportunities for your crop, market access and trade policy developments, innovative agronomic approaches, transportation for Canadian crops and a whole lot more. My name is Sherry lynn Phelps and I'm the Agronomy Manager with Saskatchewan Pulse Growers And today I'm talking with Dr. Michelle Hubbard, who is a research scientist in pathology at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada at Swift Current. Michelle has been working diligently to figure out what the plant health issue is that has been impacting chickpea acres across southern Saskatchewan for the past two years. We're going to dig into the situation through this podcast, talk about what we know, what we're looking at, and what the future holds. Thanks for joining us today, Michelle.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be invited.
0: Well, we're really excited to have you here because this chickpea health issue has been, you know, an issue for the last couple of years. And it's nice to be able to have this discussion and share it with our listeners. So the first question I have for you is, can you give us a rundown on what has been happening with the chickpea crops in the last two years? You know, what's the symptoms? What are some of the issues, um, what you saw out in the field?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So as um, chickpeas are well known for having problems with the disease ascochyta blight. But in 2019, I became aware of something that might be ascochyta blight, but might be something more. So around mid-July, I think it was July 16th, I first heard of um, farmers who'd like a consultation. And then on July 19th, I was able to make it out to look at a field. And in this field, by the time I made it there, there was definitely severe ascochyta blight. And that made it difficult to figure out what else might be going on. But as you can maybe picture, ascochyta blight has a tendency to cause girdling on chickpea plants where the lesions will wrap all the way around a stem and then you'd expect Growth above that to die because nutrients don't make their way further up. So, there was some in these plants, there were some leaves and branches that were dead, but yet I wasn't able to find girdling. If you went back from that branch towards the soil, I couldn't find any girdling. There might be ascocyte blight elsewhere on the plant, but there was kind of dead leaves that weren't clearly explained by ascocyte blight. Um, and some of the in the fields i saw the symptoms were really widespread across the field as opposed to being patchy and that's different from ascochyta blight which being a fungus that spreads by rain splash and spores it often occurs in patches so this even distribution was also suggestive of it being something else and then in 20 so that that was 2019 and then in 2020 um, both myself and Sherilyn became aware of this problem, unfortunately rearing its ugly head again, um, but we found out about it a little earlier in July. And so the first fields that I went out to see was I think July 9th. And in these fields, there would be plants that were that did not have ascokyto blight and were yet clearly affected by something. And sometimes there might be ascochyta blight elsewhere in the field, or there were other chickpea fields elsewhere that had ascochyta blight and not necessarily other issues. But the the symptoms that seemed to be associated with this new issue included leaf tips dying back, so chlorosis or death around the edges of leaves. And then sometimes that would spread to the entire leaves or be little splotches on leaves, so white splotches. And it could also include um, new growth, either being discolored, looking kind of brown or purplish, or being white and completely dead. And this would be like the tops, the tips, the growing tips of the plants. And then lower down in those same plants, there might be leaf tip dying. This could have varying severities from, looking like if that was all that was happening it was nothing to worry about. Maybe it could even be like surfactant burn, a little white flecks on the leaves, all the way to the tops of plants being dead to the entire plant being dead and being very severe. Sometimes the, the death and symptoms could occur across the whole field, but in other cases they were patchy in fields. So either it was like low spots, areas that looked compacted or headlands, or there were also reports of knolls or high rocky areas being affected and other areas of the field being relatively healthy. Um, When it came to the roots, sometimes the roots were healthy and um, even though the top of the plant was was affected with these symptoms, but then sometimes the roots had root rot symptoms.
0: Awesome, thank you. So, you know, I, I uh, appreciate your detailed description of of definitely the symptomology that we were able to see when we went out in 2020 and, and be able to actually see those plants as the symptoms are just starting. I know there was a lot of agronomists and growers that, you know, were telling us in the previous year that that's what the initial symptoms were. But by the time we got out there in later July, it's like you said, there was tons of Askegaida and it was really hard to see what those initial symptoms were. So it's, it's really nice that, you know, we can get out there sooner, see things as they're just happening and sort of rule out that it is all just related to Askegaida, which, you know, we didn't really know after 2019 what was going on. So with 2020, um, you know, we obviously are dealing with COVID, and a lot of the labs were closed in terms of the university and a Canada. And we knew that we had to do something with the samples to try and figure out what the problem was. Um, And so we took the approach that we are going to contract a commercial lab to do the analysis. And I'm gonna get into that in a little bit. But the first thing that we needed to do was to get plant samples. And I I wanna recognize the people and um, really show our appreciation to those agronomists and growers who were able to get the samples to us and get the samples sent off for analysis. So I just wanted to make sure that we recognize those people um, and they know who they are and their contribution to trying to help us understand what, what is going on in this field or all these fields um so when we're talking about the the testing that we done did from t- 2020 you were an instrumental part of helping to identify what the tests are that that we were going to get done and we decided that we were going to do some herbicide residue tests in terms of the tissues that were there some disease tests and viruses as well as some nutrition um, can you run us through sort of your thinking behind the tests and what was done and then you know we can talk about the results and and what we've learned from doing all those testings. Sure yeah so as
1: Gerilyn said um, agronomists and farmers producers were essential in getting these plant samples and then um, they were sent off to a commercial lab where the boat where they were analyzed for nutrients and we got input from Dr. Jeff Shano from the University of Saskatchewan on which nutrients needed to be looked at. The plant samples were also analyzed for herbicide residue. And we got input from Dr. Sean Sharp of um, Agriculture and agri food Canada in Saskatoon, as well as Dr. Chris Willenberg of the University of Saskatchewan, and Clark Brenzel from SaskAg as to which herbicides we should look at and which were maybe not worth the, not worth the expense to look at. And then these samples were also analyzed for disease both below and above ground, so both root and foliar diseases, and both myself and Dr. Sabina Benitza of the University of Saskatchewan gave input on which diseases we should be testing for. The in terms of the sam- so the samples themselves came, they didn't, we didn't get samples from fields that didn't have any um, component of this emerging health issue, but we did from some fields, there were healthy patches and unhealthy patches. So from some fields we were able to get, to have a comparison where there was healthy and unhealthy samples. So what I went through and did is for herbicides, for nutrients and for disease, compared the unhealthy samples to the healthy ones. And my logic there being that if something was responsible for this issue, it would show up in the health, in the unhealthy samples, but not the healthy ones, or um, perhaps vice versa if it was, depending on what it was. But as an example with disease, if it was a disease that was actually responsible for these symptoms, I would expect it to show up in unhealthy samples and then either not be present at all or be present very rarely or at very low levels in the healthy samples. Because um, it's possible for something to be there, but not really be a problem. And that could either be a disease or like a low level of herbicide residue that's not really harming anything, or nutrient deficiency or excess that's there, but maybe it's not a problem, or maybe it's showed up as a nutrient deficiency, but that's because would be because chickpeas, plants don't have, aren't really well characterized in terms of what you'd expect for healthy nutrient levels at the reproductive phase, which is when these samples were collected. Unfortunately for figuring out what's going on here, when I did that kind of comparison, nothing really stood out as being different between healthy and unhealthy samples. So, like, some things stood out in that, like, as you would expect, there was light in every single sample, healthy or unhealthy, in terms of this issue. There are some other things that came out of that, out of the analysis, were, were in, in terms of nutrients, were, say, low levels of potassium, but that could just be because um, the, the potassium reference levels that were used were for vegetative plants. And these symptoms tend to emerge when chickpeas are at a reproductive phase, so at flowering or at potting. And so it may not not be a problem at all. And certainly in my mind, isn't likely contributing to this issue because they were virtually identical between healthy and unhealthy plants.
0: So you're, ta- you're talking about the, the nutrient results, so nothing showing up in there. What about on the, the disease side? Was there anything foliar or roots that was concerning from, from the results?
1: There were lots of diseases. I can kind of go through which diseases were found, which diseases were tested for. So they, in these diseases included um, bacterial diseases like Pseudomonas syringae or other Pseudomonas species. They, and those were found um, in half to over half of the samples, but that applies to both healthy and unhealthy. Um, There were root rot organisms like Fusarium sporum, Fusarium solani, Fusarium rigulins, as well as Rhizoctonia solani, though that was much less common. The Fusarium species were present in over half the samples, and that's not entirely surprising and ties in to work that Dr. Sabina Benitza is doing where she's actually looking at root rot specifically and what organisms cause it in chickpea. But generally we think of Fusarium species, Rhizoctonia solani, and Pythium species causing root rot in chickpeas, um, but not a Phanomyces. is a very well-known root rot pathogen that doesn't isn't thought to cause root rot in chickpea, but does cause severe problems in pea and lentil. And we found a a very small percentage of the samples had were positive for aphanamyces eutyches. Again, if it if that, if there was a new strain of aphanamyces that was um, affecting chickpea, and that was actually largely responsible for this problem, I would expect it to be present in most of the samples and to be present in much more of the unhealthy samples and not present at all in the healthy samples. And that really wasn't the case. It was just like it was just present in around 10 percent of unhealthy samples. There was also Alternaria was found in quite a few of the samples, around 80 percent. Um, however, it was virtually identical in healthy and unhealthy and alternaria can come in as a secondary pathogen, meaning it's not causing the problems in and of itself, but if the plants are dying for some other reason, it could take advantage of that. So that would, that would be my guess of what's happening. Um, and another pathogen that was of suspect kind of earlier on would be fusarium wilt of chickpea. And that would be specific, but caused by a specific subspecies of Fusarium solani. And so we did find we were testing for Fusarium solani, um, but we didn't find that it was present significantly more in unhealthy versus healthy tissues. So I suppose that's still possible if we go back and test specifically for the subspecies that causes Fusarium wilt. Um, And that's still is a slight possibility because the symptoms of fusarium wilt are a little bit similar to what we saw in um, in some of these plants, but it doesn't seem to me as incredibly likely because when we were testing for just fusarium solani as a a whole species, not for that subspecies, then, then there wasn't a lot of difference between healthy and unhealthy. Then a few other pathogens that were tested for were botrytis, so gray mold. That was present in quite low percent of samples. And Stemphelium botryosum, which causes Stemphelium blight and lentil, was present in around 70% of the samples, but virtually identical between healthy and unhealthy. And then another thought I had in terms of disease was, well, maybe it's not so much one disease, but is it total disease load? So if you went through and saw how many pathogens were detected in healthy versus unhealthy, maybe there would be a difference, but there really was not. It was virtually identical in terms of the the pathogen load between healthy and
0: unhealthy. So I was just gonna comment that, you know, obviously there was a lot of diseases that were identified in these chickpea samples. Um, or that were found in the chickpea samples, but there, from what you're saying, there isn't any one that is really standing out as that needle in a haystack. Um,
1: exactly. you al-
0: yeah, you also mentioned that there was some viruses that were looked at. Do you want to comment on the results from that test briefly?
1: Yes, actually, I don't think I did mention the viruses yet, but that's a good point, that we were um, viruses were a suspect cause even in 2019. So the commercial lab we sent these samples to was had the capacity to test for quite a few viruses. And so we had them do that, but they almost all came back negative. I think there were two positive tests for two different viruses, um, but th- they were very low levels and might in further consultation with the lab have been false positive. And in any case, they were just two samples. So. If the viruses had been a major cause, I would think that most of the affected samples would be positive, not only two at a low level. So, um, so yeah, not to say that viruses are
0: out, but that those viruses that we were able to test for don't, it's not
1: looking promising that any of them are
0: the answer. So we don't have any one disease and we don't have a virus and and... The nutrient levels are are not showing anything concrete either. Um, Let's talk about the herbicide residues. Was there anything from there that that um, you know red flags or something that needs further evaluation? Do you want to comment on the herbicide results?
1: Sure yeah
0: so herbicides
1: were definitely something that were suspected early on like in 2019. One of the possible theories was residual herbicide and that brings me back to an important component of this puzzle that I didn't mention so far. And that is weather. That in both years, the general trend was it had been dry early on in the season for in the areas where these chickpeas were found. And then there was precipitation right before um, these symptoms showed up. So the way that could tie into herbicides is if uh, the producer had applied a residual herbicide preceding that was supposed to um, become taken up early on in the season, but that didn't happen because it was dry. Then when the rains did come, it might be taken up by the chickpea plants when they were too mature and weren't able to tolerate that herbicide. And although we didn't, at least in 2019, actually see symptoms of a herbicide. For example, we were thinking about um, root 14 herbicides and the symptoms of those would typically be chlorosis or necrosis and kind of a mottled pattern or a patchy pattern. And that wasn't seen. But the idea was that maybe um, that they weakens the plants. However, in 2020, there were fields that had these symptoms that had never received a group 14, but it's still possible that some other herbicide or a combination of herbicides was having some kind of detrimental effect. Um, So when we looked at the herbicides in 2020, some of the herbicides that were looked at included ethylfluralin, retribuzin, sulfenazil, sulfentrazone, and trifluralin. Um, and Metribuzin stood out as both being at kind of one of the higher levels of the herbicides that were detected and being potentially a herbicide of concern. But when I compared the levels of Metribuzin between healthy and unhealthy samples, there were no differences. It certainly wasn't detected in anything close to every field. When I looked at, so I I led a survey looking at aspochitoblite. So it was a separate survey from the Saskatchewan pulse growers survey. And when I looked at the um, whether there was a difference in terms of aschokitoblate and related to whether or not metrobusin had been applied, there wasn't a difference. So, but metribuzin is still potentially something of interest. Other possible suspects could be carryover in rotation, so herbicides that may have been applied to um, cereal crops in preceding years, and especially given that it had been dry in some of the preceding years, like 2007, 2017, sorry, and 2018, then it's possible that those herbicides weren't broken down and had a detrimental effect on some of the fields.
0: So there's, the you know, with the herbicides, obviously there can be the residual issues and, and um... You know, added stress to what you mentioned was already kind of stress plant in terms of the dry conditions out there. And I'm glad that you mentioned the the dry conditions kind of leading up to these symptoms showing up. It reminded me that we did do field histories on these fields, and that those were also used to guide us in the herbicide selection um, based on what the, what the herbicides residual products were applied um, helped to choose what to, products we were testing for. Was there anything in the field histories that stood out to you as well when we were looking at the results? Um,
1: not really. Like I went through the field histories and noted that the most common preceding crop was Durham, but there wasn't really anything, but some of the fields were like virgin to jippy. So it's not like people have been growing chickpea in really tight rotations. That would have been something that might have stood out, in especially in terms of disease, that that uh, could increase. It definitely can increase the risk of ascochyta blight and likely of other chickpea-specific diseases. But some of these fields had never had chickpea before, so that's really not likely an issue. And the field histories were also quite diverse in terms of things like soil texture. Like they span the gamut from Sandy to clay, yeah. So no, nothing, nothing really stands out in the field history that's come, that seems like it could explain the issue, other than the weather is an is likely an important factor, having been dry and then wet.
0: Okay. So we've done the plant sample analysis, um, and now I I know there's some further testing going on because we did have some soil samples that were gathered, and again, a big, big, big thank you to. All those agronomists that were able to obtain some soil samples from both some separate, separate healthy fields, compared to those that are affected. Um, would you like to kind of just give us an overview of what the plans are for those soil samples and what we're looking at and why?
1: So soil samples were collected this fall, like the fall of 2020, and the soil samples are Intended for both looking, both sequencing analysis to look at the living component of the soil, and the purpose of that is so that the pathogen testing that was done was done looking for specific pathogens that we determined ahead of time we're going to test for this, and that we have a test that looks just for that pathogen. Whereas what this sequence-based approach will do is do a more general scan, so it could potentially pick up pathogens that we didn't think to test for, or for things that aren't necessarily pathogens but are just components of the soil microbial community, so fungi or bacteria or umycetes that are there, and might be pathogens or they might be protective, so looking for differences there and seeing what, what can be found. Then more nutrient analysis is planned, as well as um, soil physical testing. So testing of things like electrical conductivity and pH. Um, electrical conductivity is intended to look at soil salinity, which could potentially cause stress to the plants. Or, and same with pH. pH could induce stress, could make plants more susceptible to certain pathogens, and could cause issues like aluminum toxicity which could then cause cause symptoms. Though the symptoms of aluminum toxicity, like stunted roots don't really match with what we're seeing, but it's still good to test for them. Um, another component that hasn't come up yet in this discussion is insects. One of the plans for the soil testing is the samples will go to Dr. Mario Tanuda at the University of Manitoba to look for nematodes. And one of the reasons we're thinking about nematodes is that in some root samples that Sabina Benica's group looked at in 2019, they did observe a few nematodes but no further analysis was done. So it would be, although Mario has said that the symptoms we're seeing don't match with what you typically expect for nematode issues, it is it is still a possibility. And then there's also been insect issues um, in that some nodule feeding insects have been noted on some of the chickpea plants and have been identified by Dr. Sean Prager's group and by Dr. James Tansey of Saskag.
0: Okay, so insects, we're adding, adding. we have disease, herbicides, soils, and now potentially insects. So, you know, it's ex, exciting looking back and seeing all the different tests that's being done. And, and so far, nothing is really jumping out at us. So besides all this testing that's either been done or is underway, what are your plans for winter regarding this issue and, um, you know, some different approaches that might be taken to help shed some light?
1: The, the future plans are, um, well, we're considering a survey for 2021 if this um, problem should unfortunately recur. And that's tied into a grant proposal that I have with Dr. Sean Sharp and Dr. Jeff Shino. And this um, project would involve trying to reproduce the impacts, reproduce this issue in a pot based system. So we would do things like induce drought stress and then heavily water the plants and perhaps um, use um, intentional application of one of the herbicides of suspicion or collect durum residue where we knew that some of these carryover herbicides of suspicion were present and see if we can reproduce some some of the symptoms.
0: So a big, big thing is trying to recreate the situation under controlled conditions where we can, where, or where you guys can see what's what's causing the, the symptomology. That would exactly. be exciting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. See
1: if, see if we can, because we really have no idea what if any of these things will work to try to reproduce it. But if we could reproduce it, that could give us a lot more idea about what's causing it. And then we could start working on Real recommendations of what can be done about it or to prevent it
0: yeah, solutions to the problem got to know what the problem is first, right <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> okay so well let's let 's wrap up then um, with your final comments in terms of. What do you recommend to growers that are concerned about this issue? They've been dealing with this issue for two years. They're questioning, like, do I grow chickpeas again because I've been having this issue for two years? What can I do if I am going to grow chickpeas? What can I do to try and mitigate this, even though we don't really know what it is? What are you telling guys?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And one I struggle with, no matter how much time I spend thinking about it, because we just don't know what the problem is. So it's really hard to come up with any confident recommendation. When I try to, so what I've tried to do to think about this is put myself in the shoes of the farmer. And it's a lot of risk to grow chickpeas when you just don't know, especially if you are in, when you just don't know what the causes are. So I guess I would be especially cautious or worried if I was in the Southwest area. So like Sineboya, Gravelberg, Coronac, Mossbank, those are some of the areas where this has shown up more severely. So I might think about, um, I wouldn't change my varieties. That's something that has come up in, that did not come up in this discussion, but was suspected in 2019 that, perhaps Orion, the chickpea variety was more susceptible than leader, but that didn't really show up this past year. So I wouldn't change varieties at this point. And we have had anecdotal reports that even in Desi chickpeas, this has shown up. I might limit my acres. I would definitely follow normal good practices, like long rotation times, using good clean seed, following Underside recommendations for managing ascochyta blight. I continue to do all of those things. And another thing that I might, that I would love to see people try, mainly because I have some evidence that it helps with ascochyta blight, is intercropping chickpea and flax. I really don't have any idea if it helps with this problem, but in the in the chickpea survey that I led, none of the intercropping fields had. Um, had this emerging health issue. So no field where chickpea and fox were grown together had this issue, but that's not to say it can't happen. And so if you did want to go with intercropping, I would start really small if you haven't tried it before, just to see how it works for you. So I really wish that I had some kind of concrete solutions and it bugs me that we don't. So I hope we'll have an answer soon, but that's the best I can do.
0: Well, thank you, I appreciate it, Michelle. It's, it's always a struggle to try and give recommendations when you don't really know what the problem is. And um, you know, your recommendations on good practices, I think is, is about all we can do at this point and, and the opportunity for that intercrop as well. Um, we'll see how things go this year. Fingers crossed that maybe 2021 is a new year and we, this, this issue may not appear. Um, That could be our best hope, right?
1: Yes, exactly. Let's hope for that.
0: Well, that about wraps up our discussion for today. Thank you, Michelle, for joining us.
1: Okay, thank you. It was great.
0: I want to say a big thank you to everyone for tuning in to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast. For more information on this chickpea health issue, visit the resource section of the Saskatchewan Pulse Growers website at saskpulse.com. For a recent fact sheet and webinar on this topic, you can also see those resources there. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Store.